0: Welcome to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter by chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse by verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of Scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. 2 Nephi 1 Although this is a new book, the book of 2 Nephi, the narrative picks right up where it left off, at the end of 1 Nephi chapter 22, and Nephi acknowledges in the first verse of this new book that he had just made an end of teaching his brethren. We know of course that he did so using the words of the brass plates, and in particular the words of Isaiah, having just read 1 Nephi chapters 20 and 21, which again corresponded with Isaiah forty eight and forty nine. But before we hear from Nephi, as the book of 2 Nephi begins, he'll do something similar to what he did in 1 Nephi, and that is, he will give Lehi's words to us. So this is a great opportunity for us as we begin the book of 2 Nephi. We get to hear from Lehi once again, this master teacher. Nephi will quote Lehi after a three-verse introduction in 2 Nephi chapter 1. For the next three and a half chapters, as we get to the middle of 2 Nephi chapter 4, we'll then move in to that beautiful psalm that is offered by Nephi. What we receive from Lehi then, in 2 Nephi chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, is really a series of monologues that are directed to several specific groups. Through most of 2 Nephi chapter 1, Lehi will address all of his sons collectively. Then at the end of that chapter, the first individual that he will address is Zoram in verses 30 through 32. The next chapter, 2 Nephi chapter 2, will be addressed entirely to Jacob, and the same pattern follows for 2 Nephi chapter 3, where Joseph is addressed then we'll find that at the beginning of 2 Nephi chapter 4, the children of Laman, the children of Lemuel, the sons of Ishmael, and then Sam and Nephi together will all be addressed by Lehi prior to his death, which is given to us in 2 Nephi chapter 4 verse 12. Lehi's words in these chapters then have much in common with the final words of Old Testament patriarchs such as Jacob in Genesis chapter 49. That's probably the best comparison where Jacob directs specific blessings and prophecies to each one of his sons and to their posterity. We will see this pattern later in the Book of Mormon as we read on between other fathers and other sons where in addition to a patriarchal benediction and blessing to posterity, There's also a transfer of records between the patriarchal figure and his heir. This will take place when King Benjamin has this interchange with his sons in Mosiah chapter 1. It'll happen when Alma addresses his sons in Alma chapter 36 through 42. And then later between Mormon and Moroni, and that is recorded in Moroni chapters 8 through 9. So again, this beautiful segment of Nephi's record and of the Book of Mormon, where we hear from Lehi in this way, will end in 2 Nephi chapter 4, verse 12, with Lehi's passage to the other side of the veil. For now, however, in these three and a half chapters, beginning with 2 Nephi chapter 1, we will have the privilege of learning several resplendent teachings and prophecies from Lehi. That really are unique to all scripture. So turning our attention back specifically to 2 Nephi chapter 1, we find that after a three-verse introduction, again, Lehi addresses his sons generally. With them, he covers several key topics beginning in verse 4, where in verses 4-9, through nine, we find an extended discussion of what is meant by the land of promise and what this promise is. At the end of this passage in verse 9, we find that this really is a conditional promise. Uh, There is a conditional blessing. When we move to the next section, beginning in verse 10, we find the opposite, that there is a conditional curse. And as it says in verse 10, when the time cometh that they shall dwindle in unbelief after they have received so great blessings from the hand of the Lord, And if, as it says later in the verse, there's the conditional clause, the day shall come that they will reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, then as it says in verse 11, yea, he will bring other nations unto them. They will lose the lands of their possessions, and they will be scattered and smitten. After this extended discussion, then, of the land of promise, and of the conditional promise and the conditional curse, Lehi gives general counsel to his sons, beginning in verse 13, beginning this section with a curious phrase, the sleep of hell, which is something that we'll talk about in more detail. Lehi appeals to his sons in a new way, to follow the commandments and turn from their wicked ways. In verse 15, we discover that Lehi has had the assurance of his soul being redeemed from hell. Lehi exhorts his sons further in several ways, ending in verse 23 by telling them to awake and put on the armor of righteousness and calling to mind uh, several other figures of speech that we'll discuss in detail. He then does something interesting. In verses 24 through 27, he defends Nephi. He moves right to what was probably the heart of of the conflict between Laman, in particular, and Nephi, uh, following the law of primogenitor, where it seemed to be that Nephi uh, had become the heir to Lehi's blessing. Lehi defends and clarifies Nephi's motives in verse 25, saying, I know that Nephi hath not sought for power nor authority over you. Then Lehi's patriarchal blessings begin here at verse 28, uh, which takes us all the way to 2 Nephi chapter 4, verse 11, where Lehi addresses what are presumably to be the heads of tribes. Zoram is the head of his posterity-to-be, and the same can be said for each of Lehi's sons and the sons of Ishmael. First, Zoram is addressed among these parties in verses 30 through 32, and that's how this chapter ends. Let's move back now to verse 1, where we find this three verse introduction before Lehi's words begin. Verse 1 And now it came to pass that after I, Nephi, had made an end of teaching my brethren, our father Lehi also spake many things unto them, and rehearsed unto them how great things the Lord had done for them in bringing them out of the land of Jerusalem. Right at the beginning of this book, then, in recounting this Exodus story, that is the bias or the filter that will color the telling of this story, according to Nephi, that this is a story of how great things the Lord has done for them in bringing them out of the land of Jerusalem. That is the focus. That really tells us something about how we can retell our histories. Despite trials and setbacks, we can tell our stories through this same bias or this same filter of how great things the Lord has done for us in leading us along. Verse 2, And he, being Lehi again, spake unto them concerning their rebellions upon the waters and the mercies of God in sparing their lives that they were not swallowed up in the sea. When we read the word rebellions in this verse, we might think of it as somewhat innocuous because of the way in which we use the word rebel or rebellion today in a domestic or family sense. I think we can see from this, though, that this isn't just general antagonism from Laman and Lemuel and whoever else was allied with them. But this really was a very organized effort to thwart what was happening at several key points in this Exodus journey. Verse 3, And he also spake unto them concerning the land of promise, which they had obtained, how merciful the Lord had been, and warning us that we should flee out of the land of Jerusalem. So these three verses actually reflect the exodus pattern, the general exodus pattern. Verse 1 is the account of leaving. Verse 2 is the account of traveling. And then verse 3 is the account of arriving, somewhat similar to moving from a first estate to a second estate of mortality, and then finally arriving in the third estate. At the beginning of verse 4, Nephi narrates by saying, For behold, said he. And then Lehi's words begin, from here again until the middle of 2 Nephi chapter 4. So here we begin with Lehi's words. I have seen a vision, in which I know that Jerusalem is destroyed, and had we remained in Jerusalem, we should also have perished. This is remarkable in several ways. This is not a vision involving the future, or of Lehi's own timeline, or posterity really. But instead it's a prophetic awareness through vision that something happening elsewhere uh, in the past has taken place. This, I think for us, is an interesting application of the visionary and prophetic gift and what it is that a prophet can be allowed to see on our behalf. It is also a confirming witness, I think, that yes, it was right to leave Jerusalem, but it is only now confirmed after a tremendous trial of faith. I would like to turn to the Old Testament at this point, so that we as readers can also have this fully confirmed. We can turn to Second Kings chapter 25 and read the account of the way in which Jerusalem was finally taken into captivity. Here is where we read the thing that Lehi warned us about. Here is where Lehi and Jeremiah and others are fully vindicated in their prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem. So 2 Kings chapter 25 verse 1, And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host against Jerusalem, and pitched against it, and they built forts against it round about and the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. So this is how it begins. It begins with a siege in this manner. It's something that uh, the writing was on the wall that this would happen to those with the prophetic gift. But to those like Laman and Lemuel, this was unthinkable. But it did happen. We read in verse 3, And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broken up. And all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city round about, and the king went the way toward the plain. And the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king, and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. So, lest we miss what's happening here, Zedekiah fled, and the Chaldees, or in other words, the Babylonians, pursued after the king. In verse 5, that is King Zedekiah. They overtook him in the plains of Jericho. They captured Zedekiah, and as we learn in verse 6, so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. Perhaps they would have been more merciful had Zedekiah not fled in this way. But here's what happens to Zedekiah in verse 7. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with fetters and brass, and carried him to Babylon. So that's how things ended for the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Then 2 Kings chapter 25 gives us more detail about what was done to the city Jerusalem, beginning in verse 9, And he, being Nebuchadnezzar, burnt the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem and every great man's house burnt he with fire. So when Lehi prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed, here it is, and this is what it looked like. Now in verse 10, And all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captains of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. Now the rest of the people that were left in the city, and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon with the remnant of the multitude Did Nebuzar Adon, the captain of the guard, carry away? Now we find what was done to the treasured and sacred objects that were inside of this temple in verse 13. And the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord, and the bases, and the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord, did the Chaldees break in pieces and carried the brass of them to Babylon, and the pots, and the shovels, and the snuffers, and the spoons, and all the vessels of brass wherewith they were ministered, took they away. So the author of 2 Kings is showing us that the king was taken captive. He was dismantled. Now the temple is being dismantled. Now in verse 18, we find that the leadership of the city of Jerusalem is being rounded up and um, dispatched. Verse 18, And the captain of the guard took Saraiah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the door. And out of the city he took an officer that was set over the men of war, and five men of them that were in the king's presence, which were found in the city, and the principal scribe of the host, which mustered the people of the land, and threescore men of the people of the land that were found in the city. And Nebuzar captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon to Riblah. And the king of Babylon smote them and slew them at Riblah in the hand in the land of Hamath. So Judah was carried away out of their land. We often refer to this period as the Babylonian captivity, which is accurate. But when Lehi said that Jerusalem would be destroyed, it was destroyed. And so here in this last passage, we see that the leadership itself of Jerusalem, as many of the leaders that could be rounded up, were also killed. That then is a closer look at this incident when Jerusalem was ultimately destroyed. Daniel Ludlow said this, Lehi and his group had been warned by the Lord to flee from the land of Jerusalem so that they would escape this destruction. Most biblical scholars date the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, somewhere between 586 B.C. and 590 B.C. Thus, in his chronological footnotes in this section of the Book of Mormon, Brother Talmadge suggests that the events following Lehi's vision of the destruction of Jerusalem took place sometime after about 588 B.C., Uh, We learn contextually from this that Elder Talmadge had something to do with the dating that we read in our Book of Mormon. So that is Lehi's first message as this address begins in verse 4, that Jerusalem has been destroyed. Now in verse 5, But, said he, notwithstanding our afflictions, we have obtained a land of promise, a land which is choice above all other lands, a land which the Lord God hath covenanted with me should be a land for the inheritance of my seed. Yea, the Lord hath covenanted this land unto me, and to my children forever, and also all those who should be led out of other countries by the hand of the Lord. Something that we can and should notice from this before we move into this extended discussion of the land of promise is that Jerusalem has been the land of promise in the past. Throughout all of the biblical narrative, the land of Canaan has been the promised land of the Old Testament. And the Lord's people have returned to it again and again. We're discovering here that there can be a different land of promise. This, I think, can show us that the land itself, the place itself, is a means to a sacred end. But the sacred end is the promise. It is the covenant. And that is the sacred thing. This verse teaches us, then, that this new land of the promise is a land where a covenant is made, where it is a choice land. And it is for Lehi's seed, but it is also for others, it tells us, that will be led out of other countries by the hand of the Lord. Uh, This is certainly true of the Gentiles and the way that Nephi described them in 1 Nephi chapter 13. It was also true well prior to Lehi with the Jaredites, who also pursued a land of promise made a sea voyage, and ultimately arrived at a land of great abundance uh, where there was the same conditional covenant. Before moving to the next verse, verse 6, I want to look at some commentary from modern prophets on this concept of a land of promise. Uh, First, Gordon B. Hinckley once said this, I marvel at the miracle of America the land which the God of heaven long ago declared to be a land choice above all other lands. God bless America, for she is his creation. We can best understand President Hinckley's feelings as a prophet uh, towards the land of America when we understand that it is the mighty nation that will facilitate the restoration of the gospel. It is a place that is made great because of the promise. I think we might be able to put it that way. Here's something by McConkie and Millet. The covenants of the Lord are eternal, and the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth is understood by the Latter-day Saints to be literal. On this matter, Elder Orson Pratt observed, Different portions of the earth have been pointed out by the Almighty from time to time to his children as their everlasting inheritance, as instances Abraham and his posterity that were worthy were promised Palestine, Moab and Ammon, the children of righteous Lot, were promised a portion not far from the boundaries of the twelve tribes. The meek among the Jaredites, together with a remnant of the tribe of Joseph, were promised the great western continent. The righteous of all nations who shall in this dispensation be gathered to that land will receive their inheritance in common with the meek who formerly sojourned upon the land. In the resurrection the meek of all ages and nations will be restored to that portion of the earth previously promised to them. And thus all the different portions of the earth have been and will be disposed of to the lawful heirs, while those who cannot prove their heirship to be legal, or who cannot prove that they have received any portion of the earth by promise, will be cast out into some other kingdom or world. Unquote. Now Lehi tells us in verse 6, Wherefore I, Lehi, prophesy according to the workings of the Spirit which is in me, that there shall none come into this land, save thee shall be brought by the hand of the Lord. Here's some helpful commentary by Ogden and Skinner on this phrase, Hand of the Lord. The Lord covenanted to give Lehi's posterity an everlasting possession of land in what we call the Americas, along with all those who should be led out of other countries, by the hand of the Lord. That same Lord comments on the immigration of groups of people to this land of the Americas, quote, There shall none come into this land, save they shall be brought by the hand of the Lord, unquote. America, is for all the good and righteous people of the world. President Anthony W. Ivins of the First Presidency taught in 1932 that the Lord brought the faith of the devoted Puritans of New England. He brought the patriotism of the Dutch at New York. He brought the gallantry of the Cavaliers of Virginia, the light-hearted energy of the French of New Orleans, just the kind of composite body of men to establish a government that could not be dominated by any particular race or tongue, but made composite, That all men might be welcome to it, live under, and enjoy its privileges. The God of this land, who is Jesus Christ, described this land as choice above all other lands, and the covenant includes divine title to the land, plus security in the land, based on the inhabitants' obedience. Then Lehi tells us in verse 7 Wherefore, this land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. And if it so be that they shall serve him according to the commandments which he has given them, it shall be a land of liberty unto them. Wherefore, they shall never be brought down into captivity. If so, it shall be because of iniquity. For if iniquity shall abound, cursed shall be the land for their sakes. But unto the righteous it shall be blessed forever. We get the distinct understanding from this verse that the Lord chooses who it is that will come to this place, and we'll learn more about that in a moment. But Lehi uses the phrase, unto him whom he shall bring. We might wonder what this looks like for Lehi or for the Jaredites or for Columbus or even for us that are here now. Does does this bringing that Lehi talks about really sometimes grow out of our own desires? That does seem to be true. When we become consumed with a righteous desire and we act on it and move towards that end, In a way, that is us being led along and being brought to the outcome that we seek. The word consecrated is used in this verse, and a dictionary definition of consecrated is really twofold. Uh, One is that uh, it is separated from a common to a sacred use. So it could certainly be said that of this land that we live in, that it is separated for a sacred use. Or another dictionary definition is, is that it is devoted or dedicated to the service and worship of God. President Desert Taft Benson once said that America was to be the Lord's latter-day base of operations for his restored church. The word if is of great importance in verse 7, where it says, If it so be, that they shall serve him according to the commandments which he has given them. We have this from uh, Millett and McConkie. Prophecy is of two kinds, conditional and unconditional. Unconditional prophecies are divine proclamations of that which will be, irrespective of what man or nations do. The first and second comings of Christ, the resurrection, and the day of judgment are classic examples of unconditional prophecy. Conditional prophecies are prophetic assurances or warnings of what will or will not be dependent upon the obedience or disobedience of those to whom the prophecy is given. The promise of liberty to the inhabitants of the American continent was obviously conditional. Now verse 8, And behold, it is wisdom that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. For behold, many nations would overrun the land, that there would be no place for an inheritance. So we see here that the Lord has controlled who it is that he would bring to this nation. So much so, as we already know, that he directed Nephi to build a ship and he directed the Jaredites to do the same uh, in an earlier era. But we also learn in this verse that so much so that he kept this land from the knowledge of other nations so that they would not, as it says here, overrun it. This raises many interesting questions. Uh, Maybe this was also true for the land of Bountiful, for example, uh, that Lehi and his family arrived at after their eight years of sojourn. That was clearly a very desirable place, and it seems that they were able to function in the land of Bountiful without uh, invasion or molestation from others who undoubtedly would have been in the region. There is a spiritual principle in Scripture That might be described in our modern parlance as the abundance mentality, suggesting that or teaching with clarity that salvation is available to all mankind and that the Savior sacrificed and opened the way for all who will avail themselves of that blessing. We can trust that there will be a time in the future where this same abundant mentality Uh, this beautiful doctrine, will translate temporally where there will be room for all. But it's clear here that the Lord was careful to hide this nation and to keep it from the knowledge of others. Daniel Ludlow said this, One of the great mysteries of history is how the existence of the great North and South American continents could be kept from the knowledge of the inhabitants of the Old World, Europe, Asia, and Africa, However, with the Lord all things are possible, and the Lord revealed to Lehi that it was wisdom in him that the existence of this land should be kept from the knowledge of other nations, otherwise many nations would overrun the land, that there would be no place for an inheritance for Lehi and his descendants. Here's what McConkie and Millet said of this verse. Columbus's courageous discovery of America at the close of the 15th century has compelled the generous and just admiration of the world. The reader of the Book of Mormon is aware that Columbus was directed in his enterprise by the Spirit of God, as he himself attested. As Columbus was destined in the same providence of God to establish the union between the Old and the New Worlds, others by that same providence were prohibited from doing so. The heavens have their timetable, and it is not for man to hurry the season of harvest. Had the knowledge of the Americas been made known even a century earlier, the religion transplanted to the Western world would have been that of the Church of Europe at its lowest stage of decadence, with its obsession for gold, silver, silks, scarlets. Indeed, it was to escape the chains of bondage and the darkness of religious oppression that people of spiritual nobility immigrated to the new land. Now, moving on to verse 9, where we get an expanded version, really, of this promise as it will appear, appear repeatedly in later passages throughout the Book of Mormon, including later in this very chapter. Wherefore, I, Lehi, have obtained a promise that inasmuch as those whom the Lord God shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem shall keep his commandments, they shall prosper upon the face of this land and they shall be kept from all other nations, that they may possess this land unto themselves. And if it so be that they shall keep his commandments, they shall be blessed upon the face of this land, and there shall be none to molest them, nor to take away the land of their inheritance, and they shall dwell safely forever. We'll have other opportunities to discuss the word prosperity, but I I would like to pause and just consider how it is that the, the, the most immediate images that tend to pop in our minds are those that have to do with temporal prosperity, wealth, and abundance. I believe, however, that this word should be more closely associated in our minds with the blessings of the gospel, really, the spiritual prosperity that, that comes as a result of having the gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness on the earth. Now in verses 10 through 12, Lehi will discuss the other if. He will discuss what will happen if the Lord is rejected or forgotten in this land. Verse 10, and notice the troubling use of the word when instead of the word if. But behold, when the time cometh that they shall dwindle in unbelief, after they have received so great blessings from the hand of the Lord having a knowledge of the creation of the earth and all men, knowing the great and marvelous works of the Lord from the creation of the world, having power given to them, to do all things by faith, having all the commandments from the beginning, and having been brought by his infinite goodness into this precious land of promise. That's a wonderful recounting, really, of the blessings of the gospel that are given to a people. We could say the same for ourselves. Then Lehi says, Behold, I say, if the day shall come, that they will reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, their Redeemer and their God, behold, the judgments of him that is just shall rest upon them. Yea, in verse 11, he will bring other nations unto them, and he will give unto them power, and he will take away from them the lands of their possessions, and he will cause them to be scattered and smitten. Yea, Lehi continues in verse 12, as one generation passeth to another, There shall be bloodsheds and great visitations among them. Wherefore, my sons, I would that ye would remember. Yea, I would that ye would hearken unto my words. Before moving into Lehi's general counsel to his sons in verse 13, here is some commentary from a few different sources that that summarize this concept of a promised land. Ogden and Skinner say, This land is consecrated to its righteous residents. Consecrate comes from Latin sacrare, meaning to make holy. In other words, this becomes a holy land to them, a land of liberty, a refuge against captivity, all based on their faithfulness. The God of this land was actually protecting it for a time, that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. Otherwise, many nations would overrun the land, that there would be no place for an inheritance for those whom he specifically guided to it. In later centuries, the Lord allowed the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the English in particular to overrun the land so that the restored gospel could be spread primarily in these three languages instead of the hundreds of diverse languages of the native peoples. The promise was that upon obedience to the Lord, the inhabitants would be blessed, they would prosper and be kept safe, or as the biblical covenant stipulated, upon obedience they would be able to live long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. That's a quote from Exodus 20, verse 12. If the people turn away from their Lord, they will suffer his judgments. He will bring other peoples to displace them, and they will be scattered and smitten. Here's something that Ezra Taft Benson said in a conference report in October of 1987. Our Father in Heaven planned the coming forth of the Founding Fathers and their form of government as the necessary great prologue leading to the restoration of the gospel. Recall what our Savior Jesus Christ said nearly 2,000 years ago when he visited this promised land. Quote, for it is wisdom in the Father that they should be established in this land and be set up as a free people by the power of the Father that these things might come forth. Unquote. That's 3 Nephi chapter 21, verse 4. America, the land of liberty, was to be the Lord's latter-day base of operations for his restored church. Returning to the idea that It is the promise that makes this a land of promise, and that the prosperity in question is something that comes from having the fullness of the gospel. We have this from Elder Eduardo Ayala of the Seventy. The conditions of peoples and of nations change due to progress in the world. Nevertheless, in many such places, be it in the frosty mountain heights, in the warm valleys, at the river's edges, or in the desert places, Wherever members of our church are found, there will always be those who live the basic principles, and by so doing, they bless the rest of the people. This suggests, then, that such prosperity is also possible in other nations today. This America is certainly still a mighty nation that that doctrine still holds. But we can remember that mighty nation is also an Old Testament term that is describing the land of Canaan and the nation of Israel. I would suggest that we can say once again that it is the promise, it is the covenant that makes the land such. After saying all this, as Lehi did, as we look back at verse 12, he said, I would that ye would remember, yea, I would that ye would hearken unto my words. Elder Marlon K. Jensen once wrote, If we pay close attention to the uses of the word remember in the Holy Scriptures, we will recognize that remembering in the way God intends is a fundamental and saving principle of the gospel. This is so because prophetic admonitions to remember are frequently calls to action, to listen, to see, to do, to obey, to repent. When we remember in God's way, we overcome our human tendency to simply gird for the battle of life and actually engage in the battle itself doing all in our power to resist temptation and avoid sinning. Here's a summary of the curse that can happen to those in the Promised Land who choose to rebel. This is written by Alan K. Parrish in an article called Lehi and the Covenant of the Promised Land. The great Book of Mormon societies experienced high levels of civilization and prospered abundantly. They had many prophets, great revelations, experienced many years of a near-perfect society, and received a lengthy personal visit from the resurrected Lord. But in time they allowed man's wisdom to replace God's revelations and greed to replace love. Their experience stands as a significant warning of future woes to the nations of the Americas, for the covenant is as much to all of us today as it was to them. How closely do these descriptions approximate modern conditions in the United States? Is the direction we are headed irreversible? With this background of our covenant land of promise and its blessings, and the terms on which our continued possession is determined, we are ready to make a studied assessment of our performance under the duties imposed by the covenant. An evaluation of our compliance with the terms centers upon these simple questions. 1. Does this nation serve the God of this land? 2. Does iniquity abound? And 3. Is this nation ripened in iniquity? Now this final section of counsel, uh, generally to Lehi and his sons, before moving into counsel that's directed towards Zoram, we find this in verse 13. O that ye would awake, awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound, which are the chains which bind the children of men, that they are carried away captive down to the eternal gulf of misery and woe. Sleep is introduced as its own term before Lehi uses the term sleep of hell in verse 13. And sleep is something to consider for a moment because it's a state at which we are at rest. Uh, It it is a state when our guard is down, uh, and it is certainly a state when we are entirely unaware of what's happening around us. Thinking of this spiritually, I think that if Satan can lull us, a word that's used elsewhere, causing us to sleep in such a way where we are not aware of our surroundings, what is going on around us, and our guard is down, we're we're at a state of rest in that sense, then he can bind us, and he can drag us down, as Nephi or Lehi says later in this verse, to the eternal gulf of misery and woe. It's surprising, I think, that any of us would allow ourselves to be bound. Uh, That is what Satan desires to do, uh, but he does it in a very interesting way. Uh, no one likes to have restrictions upon their liberty, R- really no one, uh, as with being bound by chains. Uh, so the only way, I think, for Satan to bind us is really if we willfully allow him to. And when we do, then he first binds us, as Nephi will teach us elsewhere, with flaxen cords. Nephi will tell us in Second Nephi 3, 26, verse 24, excuse me, verse 22, that Satan is the founder of murder and works of darkness, yea, and he leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord, until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever. So, being spiritually asleep in this way is a state of spiritual darkness that makes us susceptible to being bound. McConkie and Millet said that Satan rejoices in the spirit that sleeps, for the sleeping soul cannot march in the army of the Lord. Indifference is the archenemy of all good causes. Elder Henry B. Eyring, President Henry B. Eyring, said in a BYU speech in 2001, One of the effects of disobeying God seems to be the creation of just enough spiritual anesthetic to block any sensation as the ties to God are being cut. Not only does the testimony of the truth slowly erode, but even the memories of what it was like to be in the light begin to seem like a delusion. That, I think, is a very profound insight. And uh, by the way, that BYU speech is called A Life Founded in Light and Truth. Perhaps Lehi himself would have called upon this metaphor of an anesthesia if uh, he would have been able to. Awake! exclamation point, says Lehi in verse 14, and arise from the dust, and hear the words of a trembling parent whose limbs ye must soon lay down in the cold and silent grave, from whence no traveler can return. A few more days and I go the way of all the earth. This is beautiful poetic language by Lehi, and there's a lot of commentary on this verse for a couple reasons. Here's commentary from Ogden and Skinner. Lehi waxed eloquent in his warnings and encouragement. He called his sons to action with such verbs as remember, hearken, awake, and arise. The prophet uses poetry and euphemism to describe his imminent departure from this life, a trembling parent whose limbs ye must soon lay down in the cold and silent grave, from whence no traveler can return, a few more days and I go the way of all the earth. Similar poetic expressions appear in the King James Bible, and in the works of Shakespeare and other great writers, but Lehi precedes and exceeds most of them. A euphemism is a figure of speech in which a harsh or indelicate word or concept is softened. Note how Book of Mormon authors spoke of dying. Go the way of all the earth, as Lehi put it here. Be carried out of this time, as Nephi put it in 1 Nephi chapter 18. Gave up the ghost is the way Jacob expressed this in Jacob chapter 7. Go the place of my rest is what Enos said. Yield up this mortal frame is what King Benjamin said in Mosiah chapter 2. Gone to dwell with God, said Alma in Alma chapter 24. Taste of death, it says in 3528. Pass away, Moroni says in Ether chapter 10. And sleep, as it says in Mormon chapter 9 verse 13. All of these again are euphemisms for dying, where uh, something harsh or indelicate is softened by those beautiful poetic phrases. There's quite a lot of commentary available on the similarity between Lehi's use of of the the term uh, a cold and silent grave from from which no traveler can return, uh, the similarity between that and Shakespeare. And uh, uh, Elder Daniel, or excuse me, Daniel Ludlow. Said this in his commentary on the Book of Mormon. Anti Mormon critics claim that Joseph Smith received from Shakespeare the idea of referring to death as the cold and silent grave from whence no traveler can return. Shakespeare's quotation, which critics say is too similar to the statement by Lehi, reads as follows But that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. And that's out of Hamlet. Hamlet Acts 3, scene 1. Such critics overlook other possibilities, says Brother Ludlow, for the explanation of the similarity between this statement by Joseph Smith and the one by Shakespeare. In the first place, the idea of referring to death in such a manner is not unique to either of these men. In the book of Job in the Old Testament, we find such statements as, "...before I go whence I shall not return, even to the land of darkness." and the shadow of death, unquote. That's Job chapter 10. Job later says in Job chapter 16, verse 22, when a few years are come, when I shall go the way whence I shall not return, which too is also a euphemism for death. Then uh, Brother Ludlow says also, the Roman poet Catullus, who lived in the first century BC, included a similar thought in his Elegy on a Sparrow, where he says, quote, now having passed the gloomy bourne from whence no From whence he never can return. Also, Joseph Smith, as the translator of the Nephite record, naturally had to include in his translation those words and expressions with which he was familiar. Therefore, if he had ever heard the uh, grave referred to as a place from whence no traveler can return, it would be logical for him to translate the similar statement by Lehi in essentially these same words. Now, Lehi continues to wax poetic in verse 15 telling us something very stunning. But behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and I am circled about eternally in the arms of his love. So he's speaking in what I believe we can call the perfect tense when he says that the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. It reads as the past tense, and by so doing it makes it uh, seem as though it has already occurred. And that's uh, one way, I believe, of explaining the perfect tense. We can understand this to be an expression by Lehi that his calling and election had been made sure that he had been sealed up unto exaltation. This happens many times in the Book of Mormon with other prophets. It happens with Jacob. It happens with Enos. happens with Alma the Elder and Alma the Younger, uh, Mormon and Moroni. Then Lehi says, turning to his sons in verse 16, And I desire that ye should remember to observe the statutes and the judgments of the Lord. Behold, this hath been the anxiety of my soul from the beginning. And notice here that Lehi is referring to the statutes and judgments of the Lord. He's not lamenting that his sons haven't perfectly obeyed him. He's saying that they have come from the Lord, and that is his anxiety. He wants them to follow the Lord. Verse 17, My heart... Hath been weighed down with sorrow from time to time for i have feared lest for the hardness of your hearts the lord your god should come out in the fulness of his wrath upon you that ye be cut off and destroyed forever and remember this is not a nervous unfounded fear this is something that lehi saw in vision as did nephi it's a it's a fear with with justification Verse 18, Or that a cursing should come upon you for the space of many generations, and ye are visited by a sword, and by famine, and are hated, and are led according to the will and captivity of the devil. Here's some commentary on this passage by Brant A. Gardner. Lehi alludes to times of serious sorrow caused by contemplating his wayward children. While they surely must have understood to some degree the grief they caused Lehi, It is still surprising that Lehi so vulnerably exposes the depths of his fears for them. This is not simply a sermon, but a bearing of the soul, a glimpse into the anguished heart of a loving father struggling to raise all of his children in righteousness. Lehi also spells out the doom that will follow as the natural consequence of their hard-heartedness. Jehovah has infinite patience, but the heart past feeling shuts him out, entirely denying the quiet voice of the Spirit. Verse 18 completes the thought in verse 17. Lehi's fears that his sons will be cut off completely as individuals. It also explains that the curse they will bring upon themselves will span many years and generations, inflicting wars and famines on their own offspring. He thus appeals obliquely to their own fatherly love and concern for their offspring, Lehi's description of the cursing, coupled with the Lamanites' subsequent history, suggests that despite his hopes for the redemption, Lehi has seen that future in a vision. Undoubtedly uh, for Lehi, in his understanding of what we discussed earlier from McConkie and Millet, that there are conditional prophecies uh, as opposed to unconditional prophecies, that there's still this thread of hope that Lehi's sons could change their ways and affect this outcome that he has seen in vision. He says in verse 19, O my sons, that these things might not come upon you, but that ye might be a choice and a favored people of the Lord. But behold, his will be done, for his ways are righteousness forever. And he has said that inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. But inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from my presence." And that's verse 20, and that's a kind of a concise restatement of verse 7. And, of course, it is a a central Book of Mormon message that we'll encounter through the rest of the text to the very end. Now, Lehi says in verse 21, uh, he he kind of offers three restatements of of his plea uh, that we'll see here. He'll say that my soul will have joy in you, that my heart might leave this world with gladness because of you, and that I might not be brought down with grief and sorrow to the grave. So three, three pleas, three restatements of the same plea, essentially. It's, it's as if Lehi is saying, if you do this for no other reason, my sons, do it for me. So verse 21, And now that my soul might have joy in you, and that my heart might leave this world with gladness because of you, that I might not be brought down with grief and sorrow to the grave, Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men, and be determined in one mind and in one heart, united in all things, that ye may not come down into captivity. Arising from the dust and being men. This is stirring language, and we can imagine Lehi delivering this to his wayward sons. Elder David A. Bednar taught, To arise is to come alive. To awaken of things of righteousness through individual conversion and preparation, all of which precedes making a distinctive difference in the lives of others. Elder D. Todd Christofferson said The prophet Lehi pled with his rebellious sons, saying, Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. By age, Laman and Lemuel were men, but in terms of character and spiritual maturity, they were still as children. They murmured and complained, if asked to do anything hard. They didn't accept anyone's authority to correct them. They didn't value spiritual things. They easily resorted to violence, and they were good at playing the victim. We see some of the same attitudes today. Some act as if a man's highest goal should be his own pleasure. We who hold the priesthood of God cannot afford to drift. We have work to do. We must arise from the dust of self-indulgence and be men. It is a wonderful aspiration for a boy to become a man, strong and capable, someone who can build and create things, run things, someone who makes a difference in the world. It is a wonderful aspiration for those of us who are older to make the vision of true manhood a reality in our lives and be models for those who look to us for an example. Here we can see then that Elder Christofferson is interpreting Lehi's phrase arise from the dust as a dust of self indulgence. Then verse 22, that ye may not be cursed with a sore cursing, and also that ye may not incur the displeasure of a just God upon you unto the destruction, yea, the eternal destruction, of both soul and body. The word cursed is used twice in this verse then, showing us that those who live in the land of promise, in this land of great abundance, can still be cursed with a sore cursing. They can only access this spiritual prosperity through keeping the commandments of God. Lehi's use of the word uh, eternal destruction, or the phrase eternal destruction of both soul and body, is a matter of commentary. We get this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. Verse 22 in 2 Nephi 1 does not mean that the spirit and the body of the wicked will be annihilated or become extinct. Our spirits are eternal in nature, and all people born on earth will have a physical resurrection. President Joseph Fielding Smith Explain the meaning of the destruction of the soul as Nephi used it in these verses. Destruction does not mean annihilation. We know because we are taught in the revelations of the Lord that a soul cannot be destroyed. Every soul born into this world shall receive the resurrection and immortality and shall endure forever. Destruction does not mean, then, annihilation. When the Lord says that they shall be destroyed, he means that they shall be banished from his presence— that they shall be cut off from the presence of light and truth and shall not have the privilege of gaining this exaltation, and that is destruction. Wickedness, then, destroys the opportunity for a resurrection into a higher degree of glory. So President Smith seems to be teaching us here that it is the opportunity to progress to the ultimate end that is destroyed. It is not the soul's existence that is destroyed. Then Lehi gives us these five figures of speech in verse 23, and really uh, verse 24 starts with another, so six figures of speech. Awake, my sons, put on the armor of righteousness. Shake off the chains with which ye are bound, and come forth out of obscurity and arise from the dust. Rebel no more against your brother. Each of these figures of speech have their own imagery, and they can be explored, I think, in other scriptures. I think Lehi must have been a master of vivid imagery, and uh, it's one of the ways that he was able, I think, to use uh, gentle persuasion. One of these is his use of the term armor of righteousness, and that's something, of course, that the Apostle Paul uh, will later use. Uh, he says, quote, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand. And that's Ephesians chapter six, verse. 13, Nephi's charge to his wayward sons to come forth out of obscurity, I think, is very curious in verse 23, and it reminds me of a statement that Elder Maxwell once said when he said, besides, there is more individuality in those who are holy. Then Lehi defends and explains Nephi uh, in the next several verses. Verse 24, rebel no more against your brother whose views have been glorious and who hath kept the commandments from the time that we left Jerusalem, and who hath been an instrument in the hands of God in bringing us forth into the land of promise. For were it not for him, we must have perished with hunger in the wilderness. Nevertheless ye sought to take away his life, yea, and he hath suffered much sorrow because of you. And I exceedingly fear and tremble because of you, lest he shall suffer again. We we find here yet another feature of Lehi's anxiety and concern. Not only is it for Laman and Lemuel and their posterity, but it's the way in which his beloved son Nephi uh, is destined to suffer at the hands of his elder brothers if they don't change. Then Lehi says, For behold, ye have accused him that he sought power and authority over you, but I know that he hath not sought for power nor authority over you, but he hath sought the glory of God and your own eternal welfare. The entry on birthright in the Bible Dictionary helps us understand the law of primogenitor and and might give us more insight into why it was so difficult uh, for laymen in particular to accept Nephi's power or authority over him. And Lehi is making it very clear that it is not something that Nephi ever sought. Then he says in verse 26, And ye hath murmured, and ye have murmured, because he, being Nephi, hath been plain unto you, Ye say that Nephi hath used sharpness. Ye say that he hath been angry with you. Which I would add seems to be a kind of a nasty rhetorical ploy that's uh, used against those who do speak the truth and expose false philosophies and dark motives. Um, They're accused of being angry. And that's what Laman and Lemuel were doing to Nephi. Then Lehi continues, But behold, His sharpness was the sharpness of the power of the word of God, which was in him. And that which ye call anger was the truth, according to that which was in God, which he could not restrain, manifesting boldly concerning your iniquities. This is of great value to us, because here we get the true scriptural definition for sharpness, I think as it appears in section 121, where... We are counseled to reprove betimes with sharpness, and we often wonder exactly what is meant by sharp there. Um, Some can make the mistake of believing that it actually justifies harshness, which I do not believe that it does. Sharpness is uh, also a way in which something can be seen, sharpness of vision, or um, you can act in an incisive or decisive manner. That can all be true, but here we find that Nephi's sharpness, where he clearly was reproving his brothers, was the sharpness of the power of the word of God. So that is the sharpness. So when we are faced with the task of reproving another, if we are to do it with sharpness, then we're learning here that we are to do it with the word of God. That would mean two things, I think. The first is that it would mean that we use Scripture, we use the Word of God directly, we quote from it whenever we can in an episode of Reproof. And the other is that we do it with the guidance of the Holy Ghost at the same time. Now we get more insight into that in verse 27 because Lehi tells us that it must needs be that the power of God must be with him, meaning Nephi, even unto his commanding you that ye must obey. But behold, it was not he... But it was the Spirit of the Lord which was in him, which opened his mouth to utterance that he could not shut it. So I think we learn a valuable lesson from that. We, we can also get an, a clue as to what it is that Nephi was lamenting about in his psalm, or that he will lament about in his psalm in 2 Nephi chapter 4, four. so we'll have an opportunity to cover that later. But here's some commentary from Ogden and Skinner that help us to understand that and to get us ready for that passage. Nephi, under the direction of the Spirit, had used sharpness with his brothers, which sharpness was the directness of the truth and the power of the word. The Spirit had mandated the strong language of rebuke. Nephi had also appeared angry, and even though Lehi, in a fatherly way, defended Nephi's forceful approach with his brothers, later we will see that Nephi did feel real anger. He knew that such an intense feeling was wrong, and he desired to repent of it. The message was true and correct and delivered under the influence of the Spirit of God, but Nephi felt that his own feelings accompanying it were a little out of control. I think there's some conjecture in that commentary, uh, but I think that we can circle back to that in 2 Nephi chapter 4 and consider that in more detail. Now we come to the final segment in this chapter where Lehi directs his attention specifically to his older sons and then to Zoram. Verse 28, And now my son Laman, and also Lemuel and Sam, and also my sons who are the sons of Ishmael, behold, if ye will hearken unto the voice of Nephi, ye shall not perish, and if ye will hearken unto him, I leave unto you a blessing, even my first blessing. But if ye will not hearken unto him, I will take away my first blessing, yea, even my blessing, and it shall rest upon him. Here's something from John Welch that can help us understand this concept of first blessing. The fact that land was on Lehi's mind when he spoke in Second Nephi is readily apparent. The land is mentioned over a dozen times in the first ten verses alone. While his main emphasis was to speak of the land in general as a land of promise— Lehi's words were couched in legal terminology and probably would have been understood as defining some basic legal rights of tenancy and transferability. First, Lehi acknowledged and thereby legitimized the group's right to possess the land. He qualified their right, however, making it contingent upon righteousness. By speaking in terms of possessory interests in the land— Lehi seems to have been working within the Mosaic concept which held that God's people have only a right of possession in the land, not title in fee, simple, absolute, as we speak of ownership. For the land itself belongs to God. The land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me, as it says in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 24. Second, Lehi referred to the land as a land of inheritance. In my opinion, and this is John Welch speaking, Uh, he was doing more here than duplicating the idea in verse 9 that this land collectively was their land of promise. The law of Moses required that in all the land of your possession, and Lehi had clearly designated theirs a land of possession, ye shall grant a redemption for the land. That too is from Leviticus 25. This right of redemption was none other than the preemptive power, held by the next of kin to prevent the sale of the paternal or tribal lands to people outside that lineage group. Making the land subject to such a perpetual inheritance right was a critical part of keeping the land a land of inheritance for that family in perpetuity. This seems a likely part of what Lehi was doing when he organized his posterity into paternal kingship groups. Implicitly, we may understand the existence of a right of redemption within that group with respect to the portion of land of the land each group was to possess. Apparently, the importance of preserving this traditional right was a significant factor motivating the followers of Zenith, uh, Zenith to repossess and redeem the land of Nephi, for example, and, and that comes up in Mosiah chapter 12. Now, Lehi. Directs his attention to Zoram for the final three verses of this chapter. And now, Zoram, I speak unto you. Behold, thou art the servant of Laban. Nevertheless, thou hast been brought out of the land of Jerusalem, and I know thou art a true friend unto my son Nephi forever. Usually, the scriptural story up to this point, I would say, is one of family connections. Uh, it's wonderful, I think, that when from time to time we can also gain a glimpse of friendship. Uh, This, too, is something that is godly and that brings about the Lord's joyful purposes, I think. I think it's really beautiful when we can see that Zoram was a true friend unto Nephi. That means a great deal. Verse 31, Wherefore, because thou hast been faithful, thy seed shall be blessed with his seed, that they dwell in prosperity long upon the face of this land, And nothing, save it shall be iniquity among them, shall harm or disturb their prosperity upon the face of this land forever. Wherefore, if ye shall keep the commandments of the Lord, the Lord hath consecrated this land for the security of thy seed with the seed of my son. It might be then that Zoram did not have Israelite blood. Uh, Here's something that S. Nyman said, we do not know the ethnic background or bloodline of Zoram the true friend of Nephi. Being a servant to Laban suggests he was not of the blood of Israel. Regardless, as patriarch of Joseph's branch of Israel, Lehi extends all the blessings of the Lord to this faithful man and to his seed. If he were not of the house of Israel, he was adopted into it. These blessings were to come through the family unit of Nephi, another suggestion that he was not of the blood of Israel, but were conditional upon their keeping the commandments of the Lord. This, I think, is of great value to us because this instance here of Zoram uh, receiving all of these blessings, having been fully grafted in to the olive tree, as it were, as a most likely a non-lineal branch, it shows us that the covenant has less to do with lineage and less to do with land and more to do with keeping the commandments of God and entering into this covenant relationship with him. This, I think, tells all of us and any of us that there are no limitations to our own access to the Lord and his covenant. That even if we do hail from a different land or a different people than those of the Israelite people, that we too can become members of the House of Israel as this term is used in its most critical and encompassing sense. That brings us to the end, then, of 2 Nephi, Chapter 1. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.